Welcome to the Word of Grace podcast. As a community, we exist to love on God with all that we are and to share His grace with everyone. If you want to connect with us more, head to social media or wordofgracechurch.com. Here's today's episode. The last several weeks, we've been in a series we're simply calling Citizens. Because even as we look at the reality that we are citizens of heaven, that we are children of God, we've been adopted into his family, uh, we live here on earth and we live with all the normal tensions and struggles that people encounter day by day. And those tensions can be a lot because we're not home yet. We're not with him for eternity yet. So in the meantime, we live as citizens of two worlds. And we want to live in this tension in the way of Jesus. Amen? All right, five people want to live in this tension in the way of Jesus. That's okay, we'll get there. But if you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about the tensions of being citizens of heaven, living on earth, you're going to bump into it a lot in the coming year. You're going to bump into it a lot as we're going into an election year, right? And a lot of people are going to be talking about their plans to make earth look a little bit more like heaven. You're going to find it as we have, you know, people at each other's throats in our world over things that ultimately are not eternally significant. If history's taught us anything as we head towards 2024 rapidly here, it's that civility is going to take a break for a while, right? The last few cycles of elections have been a nightmare. And it's been a nightmare for God's people as well, but we want to live it differently. Amen? Even this week, we get the opportunity to live well in this tension. You know, this is an important week with key voting happening in our state. And I want to call us again. We want to follow the tried and true path that followers of Jesus have tread before us. We want to participate prayerfully and redemptively in our world in the ways that are available to us as good citizens here. And we want to choose to love every neighbor regardless. Every neighbor. That brings us back to our key passage that we've been studying together. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 13? In Romans 13, Paul calls us to some things that are uncomfortable as we've looked at. Some of those tension things like being submissive to the governing authorities that are over us that we don't love. He says this. He wraps up his thought like this. And I love this part. Verse 8, Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We're going to look for a few moments this morning at the call on us as Jesus followers to love our neighbors. We're going to get real about some of the challenges of that and the difficulties of that. And ultimately, we're going to remember that the love we're called to share with others flows into us because it first came to us from God himself. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. As we open the scriptures this morning, Holy Spirit, we give you permission once more to speak to our hearts, to illuminate things that are going on inside us, You're the author of our lives, and we give our lives over to you in every single aspect. We pray that you would help the words to jump off the page today. 
Even as we come to familiar passages, we know, we pray that it would be a fresh revelation from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, maybe it's the fact that we've seen the first snow already, which was a nightmare, right? Maybe it's the fact that it's already looking a little bit like winter outside, but when I thought about neighbors and what we're going to talk about this morning, I kept thinking about these two that show up in uh, Christmas Vacation. You guys remember those two? They were like the worst neighbors, right? But let's be honest, they had it rough with the whole squirrel jumping on them thing and, you know, Christmas trees flying in through their windows. Then I got to thinking about this. How many of you guys watched, you know, television shows like TGIF in the 90s? Anybody? Like on on TV? And I started realizing that basically with every sitcom in the 90s, it was the neighbor that stole the show. It was the neighbor that made the show happen every time. As I was thinking about it, it just became more and more true. Whether it was with dramatic entrances like this guy. Let's go to the next one. Remember him? Steve Urkel? He was a neighbor right? Or the mystique of the next guy behind the fence? Come on. You guys remember Wilson? Did they ever actually show his face? I can't remember. Or maybe it was just the plain weirdness of Kimmy Gibbler, right? Or nobody can forget the next one, Kramer. Come on. Is there, has there ever been a weirder character on television than Kramer? But if you wrote a sitcom in the 90s, and you didn't include like a comical neighbor who was showing up all over the place, you missed the memo. You screwed up, because that's how it was done in the 90s. You probably got canned after a season if you didn't have that guy. The neighbors were always present, weren't they? They were like the glue holding the shows together. There's something to be said about people in our lives who are always present. People in our lives who are, you know, you can count on them to be there. Whether it's good times or hard times, they're present. Presence is important. Does anybody have a neighbor that kind of exemplifies that? They're just trustworthy, that you can count on. They're always there and reliable. Anybody have a neighbor like that, maybe on your street? I remember my first neighbor um, when I was growing up. I barely remember anything about her, except she had the least politically correct name imaginable. And the Baravecchias, I think, remember because they're laughing. Uh, but I will not utter it from this stage. You can ask me afterwards, but I'm not going to be a YouTube sensation. Right? <laughs> Just tell, it was that bad, her name. She was always there, sometimes more than we wanted, right? She was always present. And sometimes it was at just the right moment. When I was about a year old, I had a febrile seizure, and my mom was home with, I think, three of us at that point and had no idea what to do. And the first thing that happened is she started yelling for that neighbor. And she showed up in a split second and was there to watch the others so my mom could take me to the hospital. And having people that are present in our lives is still so important. It's still so healthy for us. Nowadays, though, that's not always how it goes, is it? Let's be honest, people don't really know their neighbors very much anymore. Pew Research came out that said before the pandemic, about 57% of Americans said that they know, you know, several of their neighbors. But of those who even know their neighbors, the vast majority said that they never do anything together. They know who they are, but they don't connect at all. It's harder than ever in our world to know our neighbors, right? Because we're so busy. But it's still an opportunity for us. It's a calling for us in Scripture to be good neighbors, to love our neighbors, to show the love of God to those who are around us. Whether that's a neighboring cubicle at work or the neighbor on your street. 
So let's look at one of the most famous things that Jesus ever said together. And at the heart of it is the call to love our neighbors. Now, you may know this story by heart in Luke chapter 10, but something happens when we slow down and consider God's word together. Have you noticed? You might be able to tell the whole story, but when we talk about it together in God's presence, it's like the words come alive to us in a new way. And I'm praying that this morning, the Lord would bring fresh revelation for you as we look at the Good Samaritan. So Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan is a parable only found in Luke. There are two that are only found in Luke, the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. Pretty important ones, I would say. Luke 10, verse 25, says this. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. That always goes well. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to an innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you. For any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Hmm. It's a familiar story to us. There is so much going on in it that is so good. You know, as the man shows up and asks his question, how many of you guys know that happens a lot with Jesus in the Gospels, trying to trap him with a question? And it seems so familiar. It reminds us of Matthew 22, where we find the Pharisees sending their experts in the law to ask Jesus, to test him and say, what is the greatest commandment? Maybe you've read the greatest commandment. And Jesus responds at first with what was expected. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. But then... He also includes Leviticus 19, where we're told to love our neighbors as ourselves. He forever links our love for God with the way that we show love to one another. And it doesn't stop with Jesus. The entire New Testament does the same thing. Here in Luke, this guy seems to have done his homework. Seems like maybe he caught that. So now he knows that for Jesus, it's about both. So he, he says... Yeah, I know I got to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I need to love my neighbor as myself. But even though he gets the right answer, he seeks to justify himself. What a funny term, right? Justify himself? Like self-justification? Like if you're justified, it's not because of 
how you feel about yourself. It's about somebody else saying, oh, you've been pardoned or whatever. He seeks to justify himself. And Jesus tells a story that digs into that same type of thing. Who is my neighbor? He asks the king of kings. Jesus answers with his story. New Testament scholar Craig Keener gives us a little bit of insight into this word neighbor and the context of Jesus' day. What do they mean by neighbor? What does this word mean by neighbor? He says this, Jewish teachers usually use neighbor, this word, to mean fellow Israelites. But Leviticus 19 clearly shows us that it, it does mean fellow Israelites in the immediate context, but if you expand that context, it applies the principle also to any non-Israelite who is in the land. This intelligent lawyer wanted to choose who his neighbor is. He wanted to find loopholes with Jesus and who he was required to show love to. I know none of us have ever done that before, right? Come on, let's let the word remind us. So Jesus flips the question on his head. He ends his story with his own piercing question, who was a neighbor? to the man in need. See, neighboring, from Jesus' perspective, it's not just about proximity. It's not about who we like or who we naturally gravitate towards or feel comfortable with. It's about how you and I choose to love the people that God brings into our lives. What we choose to do when God brings somebody to our lives, whoever it is, regardless of the circumstances, or even if they deserve that love. I know you're going to be quiet this morning because we're touching on things that are difficult for us to do. To the expert in the law, this story Jesus launched into would have been unthinkable. It would have been heinous. What is he saying? We can't take him seriously. Jesus went straight at his personal biases and prejudices in this story by glorifying a Samaritan who was like the enemy of the Israelites. So, The priests and the Levites in the story come along that same road and they pass by on the other side. They were near enough to do something, but they chose to go around. They kept their distance from this man. I think Jesus maybe had in his mind as he said it like that. They chose to go by on the other side. Maybe he had in his mind the way that the Jews would pass by around Samaria Even though it was the direct route, if you were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, they would intentionally go the long way so they didn't have to interact with any Samaritans. It wasn't for nothing that the Jews didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans were not good, and they had done all kinds of things. They had polluted temple worship. There's all kinds of reasons they had to dislike them. The beef that they had between them, it ran pretty deep. But Jesus wanted them to get beyond their categories and get beyond even the historical issues and wrongs that had been committed to be present in the moment with clear eyes for what matters to God for the future. Not allowing baggage or other things to muddy the waters of what they're called to do. So the Steelers fan, I mean Samaritan, uh, shows up and becomes the hero of the story. What an incredible thing he does. When he saw the man in need, he engaged that need. 
He jumped into it with his whole heart. He bandaged the wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine to clean and treat those wounds. You know, we live in a world that's full of wounded people, right? Have you noticed that people have a lot going on, a lot of struggling going on? We live in a world full of wounded people, whether that's physically wounded, emotionally wounded, relationally wounded, even spiritually wounded. They're looking for somebody who's going to be present with them in the moment. They're looking for somebody who's going to be a neighbor to them, someone who has the right stuff to bring healing that they are so desperate for. Maybe you've heard the old saying, hurt people hurt people. Anybody heard that one before? The opposite is also true. Healed people heal people. Healed people who've been set free like we were singing about this morning bring freedom with them everywhere they go. It's interesting to me in this same chapter, Jesus just got done sending out 72 of his other disciples, so not the 12, 72 others, we don't know. And he told them, go everywhere, prepare the way, heal the sick, engage them in their pain, and deliver them everywhere you go. The Samaritan became an instrument of healing for his neighbor. He didn't ask, oh, are you the right stripe? He said, that man's in need. Let me do something about it. I love what he says to the innkeeper. He basically says to him, hey, listen, whatever you need, put it on my tab. Put it on my tab. I'm covering everything. If he incurs any further expense, charge it to me. Under no obligation at all. He engaged that hurting man, but he didn't just stop at his immediate need. He cared for his future as well. He didn't just swoop in, rescue the guy, and move on. He committed himself in an ongoing manner to see the restoration through. And isn't that what Jesus does for every single one of us? He doesn't just meet us in our our dark place where we're broken and in need and deliver us for a moment and say, okay, you good? See you later. He commits himself forever to your cause and mine to see the restoration through in us. And since he's done that for us, he calls us to do likewise for one another. Bearing the name of Christ, to be called a Christian means to be like him, that we're trusting the Holy Spirit to work on us when we read his word and when he speaks to us to make us more like Jesus so that we can do this in his way, to love those around us the same way he has loved us the same way he loves them. Paul said it like this, we just read. We have a continuing debt of love to one another. Ever thought about what that means? It means we are under ongoing obligation to love each other and to love our neighbor. If you want a snapshot of what that love looks like, you can turn from Romans 13 to 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage, we love at weddings, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-justifying or self-seeking. It's not easily angered and keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always 
perseveres, love never fails. Sometimes I like to suggest that we stick our own name in place of the word love there and see how we're doing. How's Ryan doing this week? Is Ryan being patient and kind, envious or boastful, proud? Am I keeping a record of wrongs? We need to let the the word speak to us and adjust how we love each other. Jesus called us to do this when he said to his followers in John 13, a new command I give to you, that you love one another in the same way that I've loved you. And they did it. And it changed the world. Aren't you thankful that they actually obeyed so that you and I could taste the freedom that he came to give us? Tim Keller said this, So the early church shockingly embraced all who were in need. The pagan emperor Julian famously remarked that these radical Christian, this radical Christian practice of caring not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, was both offensive and so attractive. See, it didn't matter who it was or what their background was or what their social standing was or where they came from or what they had done. They were cared for by the people who bore the name of Jesus, even enemies. Now, this is where the rubber really hits the road, right? How do we love our enemies? Jesus called us, Matthew 5, 44, and said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I like Preston Sprinkle's take on this. He said that Matthew 44, that call to love our enemies was like the John 3, 16 of the early church, the verse they all had memorized. And enemy love was the hallmark of the Christian faith. The one who loves his enemies can no longer have any enemies. He's left only with neighbors. See, when we choose to walk the way of Jesus, it's not easy, but it helps us to love our neighbors the right way. What would the world look like if we chose to embrace this call? You know, when everybody's at their throats, how much would Christians stick out when they showed love even when they were being accused of things, even when they were being socially written off, whatever it may cost. It's so attractive. It's so transformational. But this is so hard for us to do. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy. Anybody like, I really love loving my neighbors and my enemies. It's not easy for us to love that person who yells at us about our beliefs, maybe. It's not easy. I mean, you see the animosity in our streets, right? Especially around election times. In our world that moves so fast, we're hyper-connected with everything going on, but we're not deeply connected. And I believe God wants us to be deeply connected in the house, in the family, and with our neighbors as well. So many times we're present with each other, but we're not really present, right? So many times we're clued in on a million things happening a million miles away from here, but we don't know what's happening with our neighbor. Have you ever stopped to think about that for a minute? And where we're assigning our energies and our time and our focus. I want to just zoom out for a second from the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is smack in the middle of Luke chapter 10, which is a transition chapter in Luke's gospel. But in Luke chapter 10, he speaks to us about kind of why we struggle to love our neighbors a little bit. Throughout the whole chapter, we see Jesus sending those followers out with a mission to love and to heal. Jesus also rebukes 
those towns and those people who were too self-absorbed to realize the kingdom was arriving in their midst. He rewrites our understanding of how to love our neighbor with the Good Samaritan. And he calls us to intimacy with himself in a busy world. It ends with another very familiar story, the story of Mary and Martha. And I want to read it to you as we continue. We just left off in verse 37, verse 38, we see this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to them. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. How many of you guys think the Bible doesn't talk to real moments? Anybody had a moment like that with a sibling ever? Come on, Dad. He's not pulling his weight. Whatever. That's kind of what's going on in this moment with Mary and Martha. See, Martha is, you know, the responsible one of the home. It's her home, and she is responsible for the hospitality going on. She's being pulled in a million directions. Paul and Cheryl hosted like 50 people or something like that this weekend. You probably know what's going on with Martha here. Anybody felt like that this week, like you've been pulled in a million directions? I know I have this week. Some things sneak up on you, and all of a sudden, in addition to what you have to get through this week, you've got five or six other things, and it gets a little crazy, right? That happens to every single one of us. And here's the thing. The the word here literally means to be dragged away by those things going on in our lives. (laughs) Sometimes we feel like that. We're like, look, I know it's important for me to get into God's presence. I know it's important for me to do that with a person, but I just... I can't help, I have to address this need. It happens to all of us. See, Martha's not just some busybody in this passage who's stressing herself out unnecessarily. These were legitimate things she was tending to. They were real obligations in her life and in their culture. She had the weight of expectation on her to provide the hospitality for Jesus and his followers. It was a requirement, even in their law, to be a hospitable person. She's doing the best she knows how. She's got real distractions, not imaginary ones. In the same way, how about the priest and the Levite walking down the road when they could have cared for the man in need? You see, they get a bad rap in Jesus' story. Usually, if you grew up hearing this, you're like, oh, those priests are just horrible, right? Can't even stop and help the guy. We have to remember that as two groups of people who work in the temple, serving the Lord, They had to be careful. They couldn't go near a dead body because it could make them ceremonially unclean and unable to attend to their duties. You know, I want us to hear what's happening in this whole chapter today. There are legitimate things going on in our lives, but there's legitimate needs around us. There's legitimate things that are more important. See, Jesus recognizes those things in our lives. He knows all the stuff we've got going on that pull us in a million directions. He knows why we're busy, and he knows where our hearts are at, that we want to come to him, but sometimes we're just overwhelmed. He knows it all. He knows that so many of the things we get caught up in, they're legitimate things in our lives. But it doesn't stop him, does it, from calling us throughout this chapter to a higher law, the law of love, the way he showed us is a higher obligation and call on our lives. He wants to remind us of what matters most in being his followers. He invites us 
to love others the way that he loves them and the way he loved us. But he doesn't just give us the instruction and leave us to it. He promises his presence. He promises that he'll show us how to do it. He promises that he'll give us his heart, that by his spirit, he'll take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh like his. See, the most important moment in that story of the Good Samaritan, it says that the Samaritan was moved with compassion. When he saw the man, some translations like ours here say he took pity on the guy. That's not exactly what's going on here. He was moved deeply in his inner spirit with compassion for the man in need. It's a really strange word in the Greek. It sounds a little bit more like you're sneezing than saying a word, so we're not going to try and pronounce it this morning. But this word for to be moved deeply in the depths of your being with compassion for another person is the same word that is used repeatedly of Jesus in the New Testament. Five separate times, Matthew uses this word of Jesus. Jesus is moved with compassion when he sees the crowds hungry. He's moved with compassion when he encounters the hurting and the needy people. And this is also the same word that Luke goes on to use five chapters later with the prodigal son, the other famous parable of Luke, to describe the Father's heart for you and me. The Father, who was wronged, he doesn't care about the shame. He doesn't care about the cost. He wants his son back. When he sees his son a long way off, he was moved with compassion for him. And he takes off, sprinting down the road to go just smother his son in hugs and kisses. You know, if you ever wonder what God thinks of you, if there's anybody in here who's wondering what God thinks of them today, maybe if the enemy has been hard at work trying to convince you, whispering lies in your ears that you've blown it, you've gone too far, God doesn't want you back, he can't do anything with you, you're broken. How many of you guys know the enemy loves to pour that stuff in our ears? Do you want to know what God thinks of you? When you're broken, when you're at your most guilty, I want this image to be seared in your mind of a father scanning the horizon, waiting to see you, moved with compassion. He doesn't care what you've done. He sprints towards you so he can just fall on you with all of his love. That's the kind of moving to compassion we see. Isaiah 30 tells us this is God's heart. He rises to show you compassion. What an incredible verse that is. God rises to show, like us getting up in the morning, a little different this morning with the time change, but we get up in the morning, God gets up in the morning to show you compassion. It's who he is. It's what he does. Jesus said he is still sprinting toward you with everything he's got. No matter how broken, no matter how guilty, no matter what you've done, he is running toward you. That's our God. That's who he is. That has always been God's heart for you and me. A heart full of compassion. He described himself to Moses on the mountain. He said, I am compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in loving faithfulness and kindness. That's who I am. God is love. It's who he is. And Jesus showed us just how far God will go to have us back with him. Amen? Jesus showed us how far God is willing to go to ransom you back into his family again. I like the way Titus puts this, or... Um, Paul does in Titus, when writing to Titus in chapter 3, he says this. 
You know, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. 2023. But, listen to how he describes Jesus here. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we've done, but because of his mercy. Paul says, Jesus is the kindness and compassion of God in the flesh for you and me. And what Jesus wants is for you and me to dwell so deeply in his presence, to be so thoroughly overwhelmed by his love and his compassion that it overwhelms us and overflows into the lives of those we rub shoulders with on the job or on our streets. And as Jesus told a different Samaritan, the Samaritan woman at the well who was isolated and hurting and guilty and struggling, he said, come to me and streams of living water will flow from you. See, we don't try and draw water from a sandpit. We draw water from a well that never runs dry. We dip into the love of God for you and me that is so life-changing, so transformative. That's where it comes from when we look to our neighbors. We simply need to come to him. See, Martha wasn't wrong with all of her distractions. She wasn't in the wrong. But Mary holds a key for us in her posture. Mary, her sister, was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Do you know what that's called? That's called being a disciple. Sitting at the feet of the master is the posture of a disciple. And that's who we're called to be. There's a longing for us to be near to him, to dwell in his presence, to experience him, to feel the light of his face on us again. In his presence is fullness of joy. In his presence, Peter says, is everything that we need. Everything. Healing, freedom for you and me is found in the presence of God. Do we believe that? If we believe that, we would run to his presence, right? God wants to draw us to himself. Being the kind of neighbors he wants us to be, it comes from spending deep time with him first. So he can fill us with his love to the point of overflowing. Loving our neighbors and living out the way of Jesus begins here. First realizing how incredible the love of God is for us. How generously he's lavished it upon us. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. His love and the compassion, the faithfulness that, that he has poured on us, it turned the tide of history as they began to show it to others. So when we choose to let his love fill us today, I believe we'll see the miraculous as well. I believe if we spend time in his presence, say, God, give me a heart for others the way you have a heart for others, that you'll begin to see relationships change in your life. As you pray for those people, maybe even the difficult people in your life, the people you've been struggling with, God can do things you could never do, amen? He can unlock hearts, he can change situations, and I believe we'll begin to see it. But it starts with remembering we have been perfectly loved. And though we are not capable of that kind of love, we're going to step into it and trust the Holy Spirit is going to do the work, amen? amen? Now this may sound really naive, I mean, we got any realists in the room? You're probably like, yeah, but in real life, it takes two to tango. 
You can love like that and they can still be a jerk, right? It sounds kind of naive as we come to this. Oh yes, just spend time in God's presence. Let him fill you with his love and it will change the way you relate to others. It sounds simplistic. I want to remind us that that's exactly what Jesus called us to. A childlike faith. A holy, naive faith. To take him at his word. In the middle of the same chapter, we read that Jesus said this. We're told that Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, as seeing his people begin to live this out, he said to God, he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and the realists who got it all figured out, and you've revealed them to ones who are like little children. You've shown yourself with miraculous power to those who had the blind faith to trust you like a child. And I give you glory for that. Translation, Jesus is still looking for those who will love their neighbor with a sort of innocence. Not trying to figure out whether that person's worthy of it or not all the time or weigh up their deeds, but simply because he has asked us to do it. Stepping in and loving with childlike faith. You know, a couple of years ago, I got to see the stage performance of a book that I uh, really loved. And uh, Anybody here read To Kill a Mockingbird? Okay, this is like spoiler time, but you've had 60-something years to read it, so it's not my fault. Okay? And if you, didn't go, if you went through high school without reading To Kill a Mockingbird, shame on you. You cheated. But I got to see it on the stage. It was a very interesting performance for a lot of reasons um, that night. I've talked about it before. But there's this moment when everything changes in that book. When Scout, who is the young girl who narrates the book, she shows up at exactly the wrong moment as a child where she shouldn't be. There was a mob that formed and was ready to lynch a man named Tom Robinson, an innocent man. The only person standing between that mob and the person they intended to murder was Scout's father, Atticus Finch. She shouldn't have been there. She shouldn't have showed up as an innocent, naive child amongst bloodthirsty adults. It's a shocking moment in the story but she became the catalyst for a miracle in that moment in the story. As she began to recognize the faces of people in that mob that was so angry, she started talking to them and asking about their children, reminding them that their neighbors, her innocence and care in the face of their malevolence reminded them that their fathers and brothers and snapped them out of the mob mentality and the rage that they were holding on to. And it brought rescue and freedom for Tom Robinson in that moment. I love that moment in the story because, how many of you guys know our world is full of mobs right now? Mob mentality is a thing still. The internet's given us the ability to do that pretty easily. More than ever before, people are gravitating towards people who think exactly like them, and they're running from even their neighbors. The world, though, is still desperate to see true neighbors who will love like Jesus. In the midst of it, in the midst of it all, the world needs to see followers of Jesus stepping into that mess with genuine compassion for others. Again, even if your neighbor is a Samaritan, even if you've got legitimate busyness in your life, I like the way Makoto Fujimura explains what Scout did. He says, what she does in her naivete is to step into that mob and remind people that they are her neighbors. I want us to find childlike faith again. Amen? Amen? To simply trust Jesus. Say, this is uncomfortable for me, but you've asked me to do it. So I'm going to do it. And I'm going to trust that I'll see miracles 
You want to know one of the big miracles that happens? Your heart will begin to change. Your heart will begin to soften towards people. I'm confident that if we draw near first to him and experience his love and choose to pour it out on others, we'll see miracles along the way, just like they did. Part of the reason we wanted to take this fresh look the last several weeks at these challenging passages of scripture, you know, it's simply this. If we're going to base who we are, our identity as God's people, on the shifting situations of our world and the issues and debates and the challenges that we see in our culture, how many of you guys know we're going to be off balance and exhausted a lot? But if Jesus is who he claims to be, if he's changed us and is touching our lives and wants to encounter us day by day, if we're making him not just Savior, but Lord of our lives and obeying his commands, then we allow him to tell us who we are. We allow him to tell us how to love people. We allow him to show us his way, and we walk in it by his power. So I want to say to us, let's continue to step into the heritage we have as Christians. Let's care for the hurting. Let's be the ones to say, put it on my tab. Let's allow Jesus to tell us what's priority in our lives. Amen? Amen. We love because he first loved us. In a moment, we're going to enter back into worship and just spend some time in his presence. Spend some time focusing on the love of God as we receive communion. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. It all begins with time with Jesus. It begins with that place in his presence where everything changes, where there's healing and freedom and fullness of joy available to you and I today. As David prayed in Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, this is my sole desire that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon his beauty. You know, I want to just say it to us again. Let's seize every opportunity to press into God's presence. Honestly, it doesn't matter. If that's in the car on the way to work, do it. Turn off sports radio for a minute. It'll make you angry in uh, Cleveland. <clears throat> Put on some worship music and go after God's presence. Here, let's gather seeking the face of God when we come. Let's come excited for worship. And again, when we have special opportunities to be in his presence, like the one we've got coming up, let's go after God. My prayer for us today, even right now, is that God will give you a fresh revelation of his love and his compassion for you that never fails, that never runs dry. As we come to celebrate Holy Communion today, I want to remind you, you don't have to be a member of our church to celebrate communion with us. You just need to be a member of his body. I said yes to Jesus. There are elements in the lobby if you didn't receive yours today. But before we return to worship, I just want to remind us what these things mean for us. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, after supper, took these elements and began to talk to his disciples about a new way of life, a new covenant that he was making with us. We're told that after supper, he took bread and he broke it. Giving it to them, he said, this is my body broken for you. When you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. The bread tells us that Jesus was willingly broken for us so that we who are so broken could be made perfectly whole again. Perfectly whole. Again, we live in a world with a lot of brokenness. 
in a lot of categories, whether that's relational brokenness or emotional brokenness. But I got to tell you today, Jesus is still offering wholeness to you today. As we come, make it a declaration as we receive the bread together. God, I'm trusting that what you said is true. And no matter what brokenness I've got going on in my life, I am declaring back your promises to you that you will bring healing and wholeness to me. Amen. Let's receive the bread. After supper, Jesus also took the cup of wine and shared it with them. And he declared the most unbelievable truth over your life and mine in that moment. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed, which is poured out for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future. If you are in Christ, your sins are washed away by his blood. Time and time again. No, we are not perfect this side of heaven, but he is. Amen? Amen. You know what he did when he gave him that cup? He said, put it on my tab. Put it on my tab. He said, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to go all the way for you. I'm going to bear the weight of that burden that you could never bear. Because every one of us has things in our lives that separate us from God. But no more, Jesus said. It's finished. Put it on my tab. So if you're here today, maybe it's the first time you've ever had that realization of what Jesus has done for you. Today can be a new day for you. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you've never come to him and said, Jesus, I'm trusting in your perfection. I know I'm not perfect. And I know I've screwed up time and time again. Today I give you my life. I want to belong to you. I want you to determine my steps. I give you my all. Today can be the day of salvation for you. And you can join us as we receive the new covenant of his blood again. Let's receive the cup together in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me? We're going to worship here in just a moment. But I, I want to close today by reading a prayer over you. As we're called to be good neighbors and love our neighbors, it all flows from the way God has loved us. So I want to pray a famous prayer over you. And at the same time, I want to invite you, as we're worshiping, to pray a dangerous prayer from your heart. In your own words, as we seek God together in worship, I want you to make yourself available to him. Maybe you want to take a posture and turn your hands upwards to say, I offer you my life. And just say, Jesus, would you show me again how to love my neighbor? Would you show me again? Would you fill me again with your love that overflows into others? So I could do this the way you've called me to. And what love he has shown to us. Amen. This is my prayer for you from Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp How wide and long, how high and deep is the love of God in Christ. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Jesus, thank you for your incredible love for us today. We come to celebrate that you went all the way for us.
that you said, put it on my tab, and that we can enter your presence now with great thanksgiving, knowing that no matter what we've done or will ever do, you've paid the price for us to be your children again. You've given us the privilege that is beyond comprehension to belong to you and to this family and that we have an eternal home with you. Even though we're not there yet, Lord, we pray that every day, day by day, you would renew us in your love, that you would give us a fresh revelation of how much you love us, that we would wake in the morning knowing that we are forgiven and free forevermore, that you are making us whole in your presence. And God, we pray that you would take our lives As your people today, we stand before you and offer ourselves to you again and say, teach me, show me, fill me with your love and show me how to love others like you love me. It's not in me. It's not natural. I got all kinds of hangups and issues and beef with people, but God, would you help me today to have that childlike faith, step into the mess, believe for a miracle and have compassion on those you've brought into my life. God, even this morning, I pray as we worship you, I pray as we go forth from this place that you would bring people to mind that we can love like this. For every person in this room, I pray that there would be a face that they would see, that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Holy Spirit, you're asking me to reach out and love to this person. And what an incredible tidal wave of your love we'll see as we obey what you've called us to do. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And we pray once more that you would get glory in the church, glory from our lives, and we lift you up this morning. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us today. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps others find this content. If you want to connect with us, head over to social media or go to wordofgracechurch.com.